With one hand, she grasped the railing of the passenger barge as the steamboat warrior towed it past the remains of old Fort Crawford, rotting on St. Ferial Island. With the other hand, she fidgeted with the letter in her reticule. The envelope had grown soft with constant rubbing and folding over the last six weeks. It was a miracle it had stayed sealed. It was a miracle she hadn't tossed it into the river. As the boat approached a cluster of buildings nestled under a tall bluff, her brother waved his arm toward the eastern bank of the Mississippi River. Your new home, Prairie de Chine, he said. Your neighbors will be French fur traders and their Indian wives. Quite a change from the family farm in New York. That it is. Samantha couldn't muster enthusiasm, but she didn't want to disappoint him. Relief that her journey neared its end, warred with dismay at the rough log houses and mud roads of the tiny village. In researching, I realized that the Native Americans were a huge part of this story. And so I swallowed my doubt at my ability to do this and uh, decided to write part of the book from the point of view of day sets. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Linda Ulisset, author of the novel, The River Remembers. I was surprised, and initially what made me absolutely determined I wanted to write this story, I was surprised how many famous people went through Fort Selling in the 1830s. Linda Ulisset was born and raised in Saratoga, California. She is a retired elementary school teacher with an MFA in writing from Lindenwood University, and she is a founding member of Paper Lantern Writers. In August 2020, Ulisset's novel, The Aloha Spirit, was published by She Writes Press. The story is inspired by her husband's grandmother, who grew up in Hawaii. Her newest novel, The River Remembers, also from She Writes Press, features an ancestor of Linda's born at Fort Snelling, Minnesota in 1835. Today, I'll be talking with her about her new novel, The River Remembers. So I'm quite familiar with Minnesota history and the confluence of cultures and languages that happened here in the 1820s and 30s, but I'm curious, you being from California, how did you discover this rich period of history and what made you want to write about it? Uh, good question. I actually was going to call the book Confluence of Cultures, but it was a little awkward for a title. But that's kind of what I felt, you know, that it was about. I initially discovered uh, Fort Snelling when uh, one of my genealogical records, I found an ancestor who had been born there in 1836. And I thought, wow, that kind of, seems to me to be an early time for a frontier fort to be having families birthing children. 
what did I know, right? So I get into the research and I realize, oh my God, everybody who was anybody was at Fort Snelling in the 1830s. There were all these famous names and there were settlers and traders and Native Americans and settlers and you name it. Some There were all kinds of people there. So I became super interested and of course ended up with reams of, of research that I couldn't use in the book. <laughs> it would be twice as long. So can you tell us about these three women, Samantha Lockwood, Daysets, and Harriet Robinson, who the, the novel centers around? Sure. Um, Samantha Lockwood is my ancestor. Uh, she actually got married. It's her daughter who was born at the Fort in uh, Fort Snelling in 1836. But I was intrigued by her because the Lockwood family is actually quite prominent in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Um, and her uh, brother, actually, James Henry Lockwood, there is an, an existing first-person account of his early years in uh, Crawford County. So it goes back to like 1819, and he talks about the, the natives, and he talks about the housing, and he talks about all the people who were there, um, many more than you could ever pop people a novel with. So that was very fascinating to me to find out not only the connection to this prominent family, but to have all that background. And I know that Samantha... Um, married uh, the settler at the fort at Fort Snelling, and he was actually a temporary settler who filled in between uh, for just a period of uh, maybe a few months to a year between two uh, of the settlers that were working there at the fort uh, in, during the in, the Indian times of the lots all this conflict, and the settlers were getting politically um, dragged in all kinds of different directions, and so there were they had this political division that left the post vacant for a while, and then my ancestor's husband, Alex Murray, stepped in for I don't know, a short period of time. So his name was hard to find because he wasn't on the quote unquote official roster, right? He was a fill-in. So that was, that was uh, him and her. And then uh, in researching, I realized that the Native Americans were a huge part of this story. And so I swallowed my doubt and my ability to do this and uh, decided to write part of the book from the point of view of Day Sets. Her father, Cloudman, was the chief of the Dakota, and he had worked with um, a white Indian agent named Lawrence Tolliver, who built a village for the Native American, for the Dakota tribe, that taught them how to farm like a white man. Well, of course, they didn't really need that, but it was getting hard to hunt, and, and a lot with all the settlers coming west, the game was kind of drying up and that was getting difficult. So Cloudman realized he's going to have to find a way forward for his people. And working with the white man seems to be the way to do it. So he married off his daughters to white men. Day Sets was married off to the Indian agent, Lawrence Tolliver, and they had a, a girl, a daughter. Of course, this marriage is not recognized in the, in the West, you know, with the, in the American civilization, but it was recognized in the, in the native tribe. Uh, Harriet Robinson is a teenage girl and she arrives at Fort Snelling a year later in 1836. And she, that's 1835, 1836 is what the record says. But she comes as a slave to Lawrence Tolliver and his wife. Uh, and eventually, of course, in 1836, she marries Dred Scott at Fort Snelling. Now my book does not go as far as the Dred Scott decision where they sued for their freedom from slavery. That doesn't happen until 1847. So it doesn't quite go that far, but it does talk quite a bit about their early marriage and about how um, one of the slaves at Fort Snelling sued successfully for her freedom um, while they were there. So that's where they probably, presumably got the idea to sue for their freedom. Then uh, 
well, I would say that during that time that they were at Fort Snelling, they saw that they were in a free territory, right? Fort Snelling was a free territory. They were slaves that had been brought north with their owners who were stationed at the fort or working at the fort for some reason. But their thought being that once they arrived in the free territory, that they would be free. Well, that, of course, was not the case. But this other slave, a couple of them, had sued for their freedom and won. So later on, Dredd and Harriet say, hey, we should do that. We should sue for our freedom. Uh, you mentioned swallowing your, your self-doubt and moving ahead, writing a character like Daysets. Can you talk about what that means? Because as, as fiction writers, we all have to put ourselves in a time and place that's you know unfamiliar to us at first, and we have to kind of get familiar with it in order to recreate it. So what was that like for you first to, you know, take that leap and say, yes, I, I'm going to write this character. And then how did you familiarize yourself enough in order to, to write it so well? Thank you. Um, well, first of all, let me say is writing historical fiction. Writing Samantha Lockwood's character was almost as difficult for me as writing the African-American character and the Native American character, because I don't know what it was like to be a, a white settler woman any more than I know what it was like to be a Native American. Arguably, my experience is a lot closer to Samantha, so she was easier. Uh, but with all the recent controversy about writing outside your culture, um, I was nervous to tackle it. Besides which, I've never been to Minnesota, yes, about my experience. I had a trip planned, but then COVID canceled the trip. I was going to sail up the Mississippi from St. Louis to Fort Snelling, and I was going to go visit the fort, and all these things were planned, but I couldn't do it. So I literally have never been to Fort Snelling. Um, <laughs> so I, again, I felt a little bit more, a lot uncomfortable with trying to set a book there, but I wasn't going to take off writing the whole, during the pandemic. So I went about researching and I looked up um, as many original records as I could find. I ordered a whole bunch of stuff from the Minnesota Historical Society and from Fort Selling's bookstore. Um, I had actually had people go into the bookstore when they were closed during the pandemic to send me stuff because they weren't open. I begged them. Uh, then I also looked at first person accounts like James Henry Lockwood's account that the Minnesota, Minnesota Historical Society has. And I talked to people that I knew were Native Americans that maybe weren't Dakota, had, did not have a lot of success finding anybody with a Dakota background that wanted to talk to me, but um, with the, gave me some advice on how, in general, some Native Americans' uh, behaviors and thoughts processes. And I know it's like saying to, to one person, how does your entire culture feel is a little bit, you know, <laughs> it was only one person's view, but I did the best I could. Um, so as I wrote it, the reason I decided to write it from her point of view instead of just making her a character is because... As I, as I researched these women, they all had very similar concerns. They wanted what was good for their family moving forward, legacy for their children. It was all about preserving tradition, but changing enough to make it work in the future. And that was true of all three women in all three cultures. Um, Day Sets recognized her father's need to make her the people, the, her tribe, uh, work with the white man. That was their only way forward. But as it started happening, she started seeing that the white men were trampling over the Native Americans and pushing them off their land. She starts to think, maybe this isn't, you know, I have to disagree with my dad. This is not the way to go. And so she has to make some different decisions. I can't do that from anybody's point of view but hers. And so there was a lot of things that like that, that modern readers could resonate with no matter what culture they were. And so I looked for those moments. With Harriet Robinson, 
she's actually pregnant at one point and they're in St. Louis with their owner and the owner is planning to take them further south. And she's telling Dredd, no, I want my child born in free territory. So her owner says, well, okay, I'm going to go totally independent of her wanting this, of course, decides that she, they want to go back up to Fort Snelling. He and his wife are going to go back up to Fort Snelling. And so Harriet decides as best she can, she is going to wait and not have that baby until she gets into free territory. And of course, the, her owner and his wife delay and they delay and they delay and they finally get on the boat and head north. And she's like 10 minutes from giving birth, right? And so she does manage to wait to have that baby until after they cross the line in Iowa. So their first baby was born in Iowa territory. It was free territory. But she didn't realize that they were still going to consider the daughter of a slave a slave. But that was her main claim to fame was that her daughter was born in free territory. Again, how do I write this from anybody's point of view but hers? I mean, the, the concept of a mom wanting the very best thing for their children is, again, a universal kind of a, of a feeling. So I felt I could write that. And I was very pleased when so far all of the, uh, all of the reviews from like yourself, who's very well known, very well versed in Minnesota history, and other people who know the various histories and the various people involved. It's all been very positive. So that's easing my mind a little bit about making that choice. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on these women's experiences. I was particularly intrigued with how each one of them come from a very different social caste or strata, and yet as women, they all face very similar challenges. So can you talk about how those challenges for each one of them is alike and different? Okay. So all three women had uh, similar viewpoints or similar uh, problems or, or I don't know, perspectives. And I decided to do that because giving it uh, appeal to the modern reader. But when I looked at them individually, Samantha Lockwood came west in the story to get away from her father who was trying to pick a man for her to marry, marry and she's very independent and she wants to choose the, him herself. So she comes west, or as her father sends her west, to uh, live with her brother. And of course her brother tries to pick up where her father left off and, and find a husband for her. And she's determined to make her own choice. Now this is all made up. This is all fiction. I don't know what happened, but I do know that which I did not include in the book, Samantha Lockwood married a man soon after she got to Wisconsin. Um, and about two months later, he, he died. So I think that she, at that point, was like, I need, to, I need to pick my own guy. Why else would she have married a settler from Fort Snelling who had to go upriver to Fort Snelling to live? That was her next husband. And then, of course, her third husband is somebody that she knew from her prior life when she was uh, back east. So she has to make a choice and then have it not go well for her. Uh, but she he also, when she has a daughter by her second husband, Alexander Murray, and he disappears, then she has to decide how to raise that daughter. And she does not think that that's going to do well going back to live with her uh, brother. So she has to make choices there. Desets has to make choices for her daughter based on her life as it is and where she sees it going in the future. Now, as a Native American at that time, and it's really not looking good. The future is really not looking good, and it's going to get worse. Now, I end the story before some of the horrors that happened at Fort Snelling with rounding up the Native Americans, partly because I didn't see it's, uh, how it was really relevant to the story of these women 
ending it where I ended it is kind of more of like you leave it like, okay, we recognize the future is going to be hard for you, but we believe in your tenacity to get through whatever's coming. I didn't want to have to end it or, you know, near around the time when they rounded up everybody and locked them up at the fort. That just didn't, I didn't want to write that. So her, her, how she raises her child and does what's best for her child uh, and fights for what she believes is best for her child had to be in the story. And for as far as Harriet Robinson, trying to live as a slave and remember that she's a slave in a time when she's in a free territory and she's allowed to take off, walk to the fort to get something from the settler or walk to do this thing and that thing in a fairly free environment. She's not as closely contained as she has been in the past. So she has this like teasing uh, feeling of being free when she's not really able to be free. And so that was an interesting idea to play with too, is that she has to make decisions based on herself, but she's not able to follow through on those decisions. Whereas the other two girls have a little bit more freedom in following through on what they decide they want to do for themselves. With Harriet, it's mostly just dreams, which she wants to be able to uh, be free, raise her children in a free society. Have She and Dred Scott have a, a life together, uh, but she doesn't have control over that. So I guess that's the big the big difference between the three is the amount of control that they have over their lives. This question is kind of just of personal interest to me as someone who grew up in Minnesota and is very familiar with this period of history. I'm curious to know, when you were doing your research, what were you surprised about that um, that really took your interest or y you you really didn't understand until you were able to do the research for the novel? <laughs> well, having lived in California my entire life, I'm a fifth generation Northern Californian. So for me, I had to keep reminding myself that in wintertime, you just didn't go outside and walk down the street to the neighbor because it was too damn cold. <laughs> and so dealing with some of the weather issues was a, a bit of a comeuppance for me because it was I wanted them to be able to go and do stuff when in reality, they probably weren't going and doing a whole hell of a lot in the wintertime. Um, Fort Snelling, though, keeps excellent records going all the way back to like 1820. So you know exactly what the weather was on a given day. So if there was a prairie fire or if there was, a, you know, five inches of snow or if there was sleet or whatever, you know exactly. So that helped immensely. But that was kind of, of a shock for me because I didn't really... I mean, when you're in California, you don't have to write include the weather as, as vividly because it's always... You know, most of California is always 70 and beautiful, right? So um, that was that was difficult for me. I was surprised, and initially what made me absolutely determined I wanted to write this story, I was surprised how many famous people went through Fort Selling in the 1830s. Not that they were famous at the time, but the fort was um, commanded by Zachary Taylor and Jefferson Davis was there, and Abraham Lincoln was in the vicinity um, <laughs> there was Will Clark from, uh, or Will from Lewis and Clark were there. And, uh, gosh, I can't even remember now all the people that were there. Even Eliza Hamilton goes through there a little bit later. It seemed like everybody who was anybody went to Fort Snelling and the painters that you hear, uh, Seth Eastman and George Catlin were there. Um, it just, it just seemed like this is a period of time. Nobody in my neck of the woods had ever heard of. And yet this is something that if you were in the 1830s, you knew about Fort Snelling and the area and how beautiful it was. And they even started doing tours where uh, tourists would come from the East and go out there and, 
and do tours of going up the river to the falls of St. Anthony from Fort Snelling. And I, I was just amazed by all that. It was, it was eye-opening for me. Well, let's step away from the history for a little bit and talk about you. Um, you taught in a school for 20 years, and then you kind of transitioned into this writing career, and you've written quite a few novels now. Did you always want to be a writer, and when did you kind of go all in on it? I did always want to be a writer, and I have some really bad stuff that I wrote as early as like middle school uh, that I still have hanging around. But uh, I really decided in like 2010 or so that I really wanted to try and finish one of the novels I'd been playing with. And the reason was I was teaching sixth grade at the time, and I was known as a teacher that was really tough on writing. We were working on narratives, and I said, you know, I can't require these kids to put together a complete narrative when I can't do it. Now, granted, they're putting together a lot shorter stories, but I thought this is a good time for me to model what I'm telling them to do and finish my novel that I've been working on for seven years. So I did. I did. That was the first time I, I actually focused on doing that. I shared it with another teacher. She read it. You know, and I, I started reading at that point. It was a young adult um, historical fantasy about flying horses in medieval Wales. It's quite interesting. Not my best work. It's my first work. <laughs> but um, I started reading it out loud to the students. And boy, you're reading to sixth graders. You are going to get whatever they feel about it. They don't try and be polite. They're going to tell you. You can tell if you're boring them or if they're interested or whatever. So it was a really good acid test. But that's when I first started getting the feeling that I could really do this. I could really write a book, publish a book, you know, and be a writer. And I read that you got your start or, you know, what kind of helped you along was NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. Can you talk about that experience and maybe what advice you might have for other potential writers out there who have given a shot to try NaNoWriMo but haven't, you know, followed up on it? Wow, NaNoWriMo was amazing. Um, I first did it with my sixth graders. It's for November. It's always in November of every year. And I found out about it in October of, I want to say it was 2009. And I found out about it and went, oh, I have to do this with my kids. This is amazing. And so with them, I pitched it as the longest story you'll ever write. Now, in the young version, the young writers program, they don't have to write 52,000 words. They have to just write. They set a goal for themselves and they have to meet their goal. So they have a little thing to go through is that you write, free write for a while, and then they determine what they suggest your goal should be, right? So that's what I did with the kids, and they set a goal. And I know some of my worst writers, some of my kids who were uh, maybe dyslexic or had some kind of learning disability, they're going, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to do this. And I would tell them, a picture book is a 1,000 words. You can write a picture book. And they're like, oh, pff, I can write a picture book. Yeah. So we worked through it. And I helped them quite a bit. A lot of times they would tell me what the story was, and I would write it while they were telling me. But every year I did it, with the exception of one or two students over like five or six years, they all made their goals. And then to make it more I don't know, real to them, I took all of their stories at the end of the, uh, at the end when they were done, they revised them and spent most of December revising it. And then I put them together into a paperback anthology that I self-published. So that way all of their relatives who lived in India or Vietnam or wherever could buy a book on Amazon and see their child's work in print. And that made it real for them to hold that book. And you know what it's like being an author, to hold that book in your hands that you've written. That just made, it was just so powerful for them. And 
for the rest of the year. Anytime I asked them to do something, they're like, I can do that. I wrote a novel. So I would highly recommend it. For, for me, personally, it was easy for me to make the goal because they were like challenging me. I said, if the entire class beats me in the number of words I write in the month, then we were going to have a class party. And of course, they didn't beat me. I made sure of that. <laughs> but they definitely motivated me to keep going because I couldn't fail if all these kids are looking at me to be the role model, right? So that helped me personally make it. But I think having that kind of support group, whether it's kids in a class or a bunch of people that are fellow writers supporting you, I think that's really important to have that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fantastic story. And, and I'm so glad you're able to share that experience with those young students. Uh, you are a founding member of the Paper Lantern Writers. Can you tell us what it is? And I'm also curious, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what led you to create this group and, you know, how that, what, what the process was? Sure. Uh, Paper Lantern Writers is a marketing collective of historical fiction writers. So we work together to help promote each other's books, primarily on social media, but we also speak at conferences and, um, you know, other things like that too, book fairs and things like that. Um, I recognized when my book, I, my book, The Aloha Spirit, was going to be published in 2020, August of 2020. And that was actually my, going to be my fifth book. So I had four books published, uh, most of which have been self-published or tiny little print publishers. And I recognized that marketing was really, really hard and that no one was going to do it but me, and I didn't know how to do it. So in 2019, I went to the Historical Novel Society Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. And I went to a session on a marketing collective. And as I'm sitting there with my jaw hitting the floor, I'm going, this is, the, I need, this is what I need. This is what we have to do. And I turned to a friend of mine who was also a Northern Californian H&S member, and I said, we're going to do this. And she looks at me and is like, what? <laughs> So I, the next Northern California meeting for the Northern California chapter of Historical Novel Society, I stood up and said, I went to this fabulous session. This is what they said about banding together to market and being stronger as a team in marketing. And I want to do it. So come to my house and talk about it if you're interested. Well, the come to my house part was actually a test because I am probably the most Southern member of the Northern California Historical Novel Society. Most of them live in the East Bay around Oakland or Marin, you know, North Bay, East Bay. And I live at the south end of the South Bay. So for some of these, one gal actually drove two hours to come to my house for that meeting. So I know she's committed already. She's committed to the idea. So we had that meeting in August of 2019. There were seven of us. And of the seven, five of us decided to actually go ahead and start this organization called Paper Lantern Writers. And we published our first blog website and blog in uh, December of 20, 2019. And we count our first day as uh, January 1st of 2020. So now we have 15 members and we even have international members, Canada and, and the UK. And we have a couple of men. We orig originally were all women, but we do have a couple of men now. And we, we really are proactive about marketing each other's books and making a name for ourselves. We have uh, one anthology called Unlocked of short historical fiction stories written by our members that came out last November. And there's another one coming out uh, this fall, which just went up for pre-order called Beneath the Midwinter Moon. Again, will be historical fiction stories written by our members. 
Um, so not only has it become a great collaborative experience, we don't we don't uh, work uh, editing or, or any of that kind of thing. We don't do any of the writing. We don't do we don't beta read each other's books unless we're asked to, unless we show an interest, but that's not a requirement. What we do is market. And so as a collaborative team, we find marketing opportunities and we you know, decide what we're going to do as a group. And it has been wonderful. It's the collaboration, the camaraderie has been amazing and getting us into things like pre pre presenting virtually at the History Quill uh, based in London. So I can actually say I've presented at an international conference <laughs> sitting in my living room, but nobody has to know that. Uh, we've we've done so much that I never would have had opportunity to do on my own, and I guess that's the main point of it. Well, congratulations! Yeah, it's a fantastic <laughs> idea, great collective, and it's been wonderful to see it grow. You know, I've been familiar with it now for maybe two years, and it's yeah, it's just wonderful to see it grow. I also want to ask you about the publisher of the River Remembers. She writes press. Can you tell us about your experience with She Writes Press and, and what their mission is? Great, thank you. Um, yes, She Writes Press published both of my most recent novels, The Aloha Spirit and The River Remembers. When I had four novels under my belt, I was going to publish The Aloha Spirit. I was getting finished with it. I decided I needed more of a reach. I, I couldn't, I didn't have the reach on my own self-publishing. I just didn't have the, the enough fingers in the pie to get people to understand that I had a book out and want to read it. So uh, Brooke Warner, the publisher at She Writes Press, came to speak at our HNS NorCal meeting. And I thought that was the perfect fit for my book because it's a hybrid publisher. So I do have to uh, pay a fee for them to publish my book. But in return, they do much more than I can do on my own. So they do a very professional cover design. The interior looks great. So you have a wonderful product. They have a catalog and a sales team that goes out and sells their books from their catalog. They also have um, a, a very a reputation in the business. They were the top independent publisher in 2019. So that opens doors for awards and for uh, speaking at conferences and things like that. If you're affiliated with She Writes Press, that uh, gives you a little bit of, I don't know, street cred, if nothing else. And also they have a very active Facebook group for secret, secret Facebook group for authors of She Writes Press where we find, again, a tremendous community of supportive authors when we're marketing or attending events and things like that. So overall, the experience has been amazing. They're very responsive to my ideas. I had input on my cover, input on my marketing. They don't do a lot of marketing. They do have, they refer you to like a published, excuse me, a publicist, but um, they do some and they, they do all your Amazon, um, you know, your Amazon page with your, a plus graphics and the the uh, summary and all that stuff, and they're very responsive to anything that you ask them to do for you. They'll tell you leave. They can't do it. They'll tell you where to go to get it done. So I've been very happy. And what are you working on next? What will we see from you uh, coming out next? Just finished a first draft of a story that so far is called "The Innocence at Home," and it's about two of my ancestors. I love writing about my ancestors. Two women who were on the cruise with Mark Twain that became the Innocents Abroad, hence the Innocents at Home. And at the end of the cruise, one of these women loved Mark Twain, almost married him, but her father told her that he would not have a Western roughneck in the family. The other woman hated Mark Twain for some of the caustic things he said about the travelers on the trip when he got back. Um, she hated him for the rest of her life. So I've put these two women... Um, 
they become friends, of course, on the trip because there weren't a lot of women on the trip that were by themselves. And the one woman who hated Mark Twain, her husband ended up not going with her at the last minute. So, and the other girls with her parents. So she's young. So they became very, they became good friends. And they end up writing to each other. And through various reasons, you could say Mark Twain, quote unquote, ruined their lives because the one girl is pining away for him. She can't marry him. Not that he's ever asked her to, right? Uh, it's more of a teenage girl crush, but she thinks she's in love with him. And the other woman um, blows up Mark Twain's words so that she sees that her entire marriage is crumbling and she blames Mark Twain. Her reputation, social reputation is ruined. She blames Mark Twain. So their lives are ruined. So the one gal who hated Mark Twain, her marriage breaks up, her friends aren't talking to her, and she decides she's going to become an actress, which she got to lose, right? The other gal is a uh, painter. She, she has some artistic talent that Mark Twain encouraged. And so she ends up painting. She ends up marrying Abbott Thayer, who's a well-known painter, New England painter at the time. The other, the other gal, Nina, who hates Mark Twain, um, ends up acting, you know, doing a lot of acting, but stopping acting when her mother finds out about it and is horrified that she's doing such a thing. And so she has to make other choices. So during their lives, as they hit all these ups and downs, they both have to make choices about what they're going to do with their career to kind of get over what stumbling block has happened to them and to move forward. And what the underlying theme of it is that their friendship is what gets them through that. Well, that sounds fascinating. And it's just another history that I'm not familiar with. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, thank you, Linda, so much. Congratulations on The River Remembers. And it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Colin. It's been great being on. 